James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept uh, back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray for our time together today. And so, Lord, in this moment, uh, I just, I think we can collectively stop and take a deep breath as we uh, hear quite a, a challenging and intimidating text, Lord, that I know Matt's been wrestling with for quite some time, as Troy graciously passed these verses over to him. Uh, so, Lord, I know he's been uh, laboring in effort, and so we thank you for Matt and Jennifer and Will and Isaac, this beautiful family, Lord, that loves you and loves your gospel. Um, we pray your, your grace upon him. And uh, Holy Spirit, I just pray for us collectively that as we wrestle with this text, as we think about all the things uh, that, that go into it in our life, uh, Holy Spirit, do a work in us. Give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive um, your word that might transform us for our good and for your glory. Let it be so in this room, in this place, today, Lord Jesus. We love you and praise you because you loved us enough to come and lay down your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Y'all be seated. Well, good morning. Um, this morning, we are in the home stretch of our study of the book of James. I think this is week 21, and we actually only have 20 verses left six of which we're going to knock out this morning. But in saying that, I just want to remind you all, and especially if you're a visitor or a guest, we go through books of, books of the Bible and we go through verse by verse. And so the text that we were landing on this morning, we didn't just say, hey, it's Memorial Day. Um, let's pick something uplifting and encouraging and something that'll help foster the barbecue and, and pick something that top, talks about weeping and howling and eating your flesh and the corrosion of riches. That didn't happen. Um, last week, we wrapped up James chapter 4. This morning, we start off James 5, verses 1 through 6, with Jonathan, which Jonathan just read. But before actually getting into the text, I want to remind us all of a couple of very important points. First, I want to draw your attention to the, the tagline that we've been using throughout the 21 weeks of our study of the book of James. Grace in motion. That wasn't just a flippant decision to call it that. Troy and the elders talked and prayed for several weeks about what, what do we want to communicate through our study in the book of James. And grace in motion is very fitting. Notice it's not grace while you're sitting on the couch or or grace to hoard, or grace to sponge up. No, it's an act of grace. It's street-level grace. It's a picture of what grace should look like in our nitty-gritty, everyday, very messy lives. It, it really is grace and motion. And then the second point I want to remind us of comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word, the very text that we're looking at this morning, is living and active. It's sharper than a sword, and it pierces and it discerns. And those words that Jonathan just read, these verses, they are sharp. I've prayed for the past several weeks that that the words of our Lord communicated to us through James will discern our thoughts and intentions, that they'll actually discern our hearts. So verse 1 starts out, come now you rich. And and I got to stop there for just a minute because I know safe haven. I know none of us are rich, right? None of us at least will believe or like to think about us as being rich. But the, the reality is we are. Every one of us in here is rich. And, and I don't just mean like the cute little bumper sticker, I'm rich in the Lord. No, I mean financially rich. Every one of us compared to someone else. While we can all look at someone else and envis- envy their financial status envy their possessions, think that if we were only at that level, if I finally got there, I'd be content. We could all look at them and think that. But the reality is there's someone else somewhere looking at us or looking at our condition and thinking the same thing. So while the temptation might have been to hear, come now you rich, and think, yeah, I knew it, should have stayed home, should have slept in, good day to cut the yard. Don't do that. Because the reality is we are all rich compared to someone else But the even more important reality is that's not even the point of the text. This is not an indictment simply against people who have made money or have been blessed to have nice things. It's about our hearts and our intentions. The very things that the Word of God pierces. And so this morning, I know for a fact that there's there's two categories of people in this room. There's believers, those whose hope and trust is in the finished work of Christ, and then there's those that have not trusted in Christ. And we all, both groups, need to equally heed James's warning in these verses, because he's going to shine a big, bright light on our intentions and what we hope in. And he does so by essentially laying out a court case. He's making a legal argument here. And he's going to present three exhibits that we're going to look at this morning as evidence against us. It's going to be a case against those who place their hope or even a level of hope in the world and what the world can provide. So verse 1, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now we all know what weeping is, that sadness. But howling, that's a different word, a different meaning. James isn't being redundant here. Yes, weep out of sadness, but howl out of pain and suffering. That's what that word means. To wail and scream as if you're being tortured. So we've got to ask ourselves why. We'll look at verse 2. Because your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your stuff is worthless. It's destroyed. And now verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have laid up treasure in the last days. That's where the howling comes in. Gold and silver corroded? That doesn't happen. That's why gold and silver are considered precious metals. That's why they're so valuable. They don't corrode here and now. We have to remember that James wants us to have an eternal perspective. We've got to have an eternal perspective. That's what grace, grace in motion looks like. If you remember last week, and again, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you, go to the website, podcast the sermon, because it's, it was the end of chapter 4, and it's such an integral part of not only getting James, but every other bit of Scripture. Because last, last week, chapter 4, verse 14, Troy talked about this. What is your life? For you are a mist, also be described as a vapor or a puff of smoke, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Remember the, the candle illustration that Troy used. He brought the candle up here and he lit it to show us what the mist in that context looks like. The candle was lit, blew it out, the smoke was here for just a minute, and then it went away. The scent was here and then faded. And I love the way Troy put it about that. We are prone to chase the vanishing scent of the world just like unbelievers do. And so that gets to the beauty and the sting of the verses that we're looking at this morning. Notice how certain James is at the worthlessness of the possessions that he speaks of it as if it has already happened. They have corroded. Your riches have rotted. And that's what leads to the sadness. But then the howling and the screaming... This is where James lays out exhibit A of his case. The corrosion, the rottenness, the worthlessness of our riches is evidence against us. Evidence against our heart and our intentions. Evidence that leads to a deserved judgment. Now, As we've been going through James, I know Troy's mentioned from the pulpit several times how much he's had to wrestle with the various texts like the previous week leading up to it, how he's really wrestled with it. And so I've told Troy, you know, several times, hey, when I'm going to preach, I need you to give me the text, what it is, several weeks in advance. Because I need longer to prepare. Um, and so I've been sitting under this text for about the past six weeks. And so I get totally what Troy's talking about. And this really is not just preacher talk. But this morning, I'm talking as if you all are not even here. I'm talking as if I've got one of those full-length mirrors that you hang on the back of the door standing right in front of me, and I'm speaking directly to myself. And so if you take anything from this morning, it's simply icing on the cake. And so evidence A, in James's case, what I treasure is evidence against my heart. Money and stuff. Clothes, toys, cars, furniture, houses, investment accounts. They can all be so deceivingly intoxicating. They promise contentment. They scream security. They'll meet our needs. They'll satisfy. They'll cheer us up. They'll complete us. Why is it that we believe that? It's because we're discipled to believe that. Everywhere we look, TV, radio ads, social media, magazines, 
emails, everywhere around us we hear thousands of messages each day that point us to the many things we need in order to be content. And in those moments when we're soaking up those messages, we forget that our life is a mist. We forget how temporal this life really is. We buy into the my best life now lie and we latch on to those things for dear life. So, so we have to ask ourselves, is it wrong to enjoy nice things? Is it wrong to save money? Is it wrong to enjoy vacations? Absolutely not. Because just like as we looked at several weeks ago in James chapter 1, verse 17, James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So those things are gifts of grace. Nice things, the ability to save, a vacation, are all good gifts of grace from our Heavenly Father. But it's what we do with them that reveals our hearts. Do we see them as gifts of grace? Or do we see them as treasures to hold tightly to? What do we do when they're threatened? Or when we can't get or don't get what we want? Are we in pursuit of our own kingdom, of our will, or are we in pursuit of God's will and His kingdom? Here's the key. Do they, the gifts of grace, the nice things, do they lead us to worship and point us to Christ, or do they themselves become idols of worship? Again, this is something I've had to wrestle with. Uh, my sister, who's here visiting from out of town with her family, used to own a beach house in Florida. Um, and when she did, she was very generous, very gracious with it and gave it to our family anytime we needed it. It was like, hey, go enjoy it. Go have fun. And if any of y'all know me and my family, we love the beach. Um, it's something we enjoy. We soak it up. And so we did. We took advantage of that. We went down several times and enjoyed it. But the thing is, while we were enjoying it, in the middle of that, I found my heart, number one, start envying Number two, start planning and thinking, how can I get this? I need this. We want this. And so it was almost as if the gift of a vacation had been corroded, was rotted because of my idolatrous heart. Something that should have rolled up into worship for the grace of a, free, or of a good gift freely given to me was spoiled because of the condition of my heart. When we worship the, the gift rather than the giver, when our hope is in the created rather than the creator, we will lose every time. And I know I don't have to tell you that. Everyone in here at one time or another has put your hope for contentment in something else or someone else other than Christ only to experience that sometimes very obvious, as in the case with me and the beach house, but then other times very subtle letdown. The realization that that item or that money or that trinket or whatever didn't hold up, didn't keep its promise. That's because they're corroded. They've rotted. And un unbelievers in this room, if you haven't trusted in Christ, that is all you have to hope in. The fleeting promises of trinkets and dollars that compared to eternity 
have already corroded. They've already been deemed worthless. And they're already convicted you to a judgment. What about believers? Our hope may be in Christ, our ultimate hope. But what about our daily hope? Our daily needs? Where do we look when we lack contentment? When we're frustrated? When we're tired? When we're overwhelmed? When we're excited? Or or when we feel insecure? Do we run to the idols of comfort and control? Or do we come to and trust in Christ for our daily and hourly needs in the same way we do for our eternal needs? Listen to this quote by Tony Ranke. It's it's going to be on the the screen. It's pretty lengthy, but it is jam-packed of gold. Sloth tells me all things should work together for my good. God says I will work all things, I'm sorry, all things together for my comfort. God says I will work all things together for your good. Huge difference. Being comforted is not the same thing as being made comfortable. God is not in the business of making us comfortable. Eternally safe in Christ, yes. Free from his wrath, yes. Victorious over sin, amen. But comfortable, no. Human beings were never designed to flourish in a state of permanent vacation. That promise is a sham. In love, God will remove comforts from our lives, which is the essence of trials. When we get overly comfortable with something, we start to sink into spiritual slumber, and then lightning falls from the sky. The comfort is taken away, and we're jolted back to spiritual alertness. Through trials, God says, I love you enough to remove the comforts you crave to make, jo- make room for the joy of Christ you need. God is in control. That's our comfort. And did you see all that about the trials, about God's love and joy in Christ? That has been the theme of James the entire time we've been studying it. So again, exhibit A, what I trust is what I treasure is evidence against my heart. And now exhibit B, how I treat others as I pursue my treasure is evidence against my heart. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So the immediate context here is the wealthy landowner who's essentially cheating the laborers, the harvesters in his field, holding back what he's due to them. And why is he doing that? Because of exhibit A. What he treasures, his money, his possessions, his riches, his stuff, holds such a high place in his heart that he's willing to cheat or withhold in order to further his own gain. But what does that look like in our context? Honestly, at first glance, I was tempted to really just kind of rush over this part. I'm not a wealthy landowner. I don't regularly employ people. So I kind of wanted to get on and move on, get to the good stuff. And that's why it's so important to let these verses marinate in our minds and our hearts. Let it soak in, because after doing so, the Lord brought that mirror right back up and focus on my face. And so whether we in this room employ others or not, and I know some of us really do, this verse has tremendous implications for us. We conduct all kinds of transactions 
Some of us in our daily jobs, others just in various stages throughout life. But just let me ask a few practical questions that I've had to wrestle with to kind of bring this down and boil it down to our lives. When conducting a transaction, buying or selling a car, a house, boat, piece of furniture, is my primary motivation my bottom line? Am I the key figure in my mind during that transaction? Do I pursue only what will benefit me? Is my mentality survival of the fittest, whoever's the best negotiator? Or do I treat the other person as if he or she really is the imago Dei, created in the image of God? Do I treat that person the same way I'd want my mother treated in a transaction? If I'm selling a car or a house, do I only answer the bare minimum questions asked? Or am I willing to volunteer other information that, that may affect the price or even the decision to buy? When I go out to eat, am I willing to spend the good money, the big money on the meal? I've worked hard, I deserve it, I'll pay more money for the expensive steak. And yet when it comes to bill time, leave a pitiful tip. Do I act like I'm poor and pitiful? See, I used to be a waiter. And sadly, the three worst shifts to work for a waiter, and this was a common fact, the three worst shifts were Wednesday night, Sunday lunch, and Sunday night. Why is that? Because that's when the church people went out to eat, and they are known to be the worst tippers. Now, that should sting us a little bit. Look at the last part of that verse. The cries of the harvesters, the waiters, the people we conduct our transactions with have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And that word hosts literally means army. The title Lord of hosts pictures God as the almighty, powerful leader of a great army. And that phrase is used 726 times in the Bible. 724 of them in the Old Testament where we saw the great and powerful God come to the rescue of people, destroy nations, burn like fire. And yet, that phrase is only used twice in the New Testament. Once is in Romans, where it's actually quoting the Old Testament, and then this verse. That should say something about the nature of God in reference to how we treat others in our business deals. It's the Lord of hosts, the commander of the mighty armies. So if you're bristling just a little bit when I ask these questions, ask yourself why. Is that bolstering the argument for Exhibit A? That maybe you treasure stuff and money, and maybe that's evidence against your heart. Let me just throw out a caution when you're asking these questions. If you find the defensiveness well up, and you say, well, yeah, I mean, but the Lord has blessed me to be a good negotiator. And I've got to be a good steward because the more money I get out of this deal gives us more money to give away or go on missions trips. Be careful about that. Because if you have to gain more money by being unfair or even by treating somebody else in a way that you wouldn't want to be treated or you wouldn't want a family member to be treated, the Lord of hosts doesn't want or need that money. Again, there's nothing wrong with buying stuff, going out to a nice dinner, going on vacation. But what is my intent in doing so? 
Do I use even those experiences as an opportunity to glorify God and share the gospel? Or is it simply an occasion to fatten my heart? A quick story about someone who got it. Several years ago, I was a waiter at Jay Alexander's restaurant, and it was a Sunday night towards the end of the shift. I was supposed to be off, and they just seated my table. And it happened to be a pastor and his wife. So I knew then, I was like, okay, this is going to be a waste of an hour. I'm going to get home later than I should. Um, I'm not going to have anything to show for it because that really was my experience with church people. But this occasion was different. That man and his wife had a nice dinner. They genuinely seemed joyful and engaging. They asked me about me and my plans for after college. They got to know me. And then at bill time, they left me about a 50% tip. And then the next time they came into the restaurant, they asked for me by name to be seated in my section. Not because I was a, a rock star waiter. In fact, I probably gave you know, subpar service because of my preconceived notion of what that looked like. They did that because they got the reality of grace in motion. That in their goings about, in their dinner dates, their deal makings, the nitty gritty of their lives, they used every opportunity to mirror the love of Christ. And so one more can of worms that I'm just going to pop the top off of and let us collectively wrestle with together. Because I've only been chewing on this really for a couple of days, and that's thanks to Jonathan Thorne, who got up here and read the text for us. He, he's in our community group. And this past week, he threw out some thoughts that I really think we need to think about. When thinking about our actions and our attitude in pursuit of our stuff, how does that affect the harvesters, the workers? When we think about that, let's not forget some of the one-off people. Again, something we don't have time to fully get into this morning, and that's the beauty and grace of community groups. Take these thoughts, get in a group, and process them together. More than 250,000 Indian cotton farmers committed suicide in the past 15 years in large part due to huge debt. Why? In an effort to produce more cotton at much lower prices. Why? Because our market demands that. We want more for less. There's 80 billion pieces of clothing purchased worldwide each year, and that's up 400% from 20 years ago. Why? Because we have decided we need more. Yet the average American still throws away the average American 82 pounds of textiles every single year. But wait, you may think, like me, we, we donate our old stuff. Well, 10% of clothes donated to thrift stores actually get sold. The rest end up in landfills or flood markets in developing countries. And so the question we have to ask and wrestle with, the question I'm wrestling with is, am I okay or do I even think about the reality that the stuff I say I need, but I also need to be cheap so I can buy more stuff, that comes to me on the backs and at the expense of sweatshop workers and the Indian cotton farmers? How does my lifestyle my pursuit of my treasures, my comfort, 
affect others around me and even the global community of people who truly are created in the image of God. One more question. Am I willing to sacrifice some other stuff in order to pay a little more money for fewer things in order to ensure that those things are manufactured in ways that fairly treat the workers who produce them. I haven't resolved all this in my own mind yet. But what I do know is on the, the authority of the Word of God, the cries of those sweatshop workers, the cries of the Indian cotton farmers, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts. So finally, look at verses 5 and 6. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So exhibit A, what I treasure is evidence against my heart. Exhibit B, how I treat others as I pursue my treasure is evidence against my heart. And now exhibit C, my self-indulgence is evidence against my heart. Again, such vivid imagery used here. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've lived on this earth during this mist of a time in luxury and self-indulgence. Does that mark you? I know as I've come face to face with these words that there are areas in my life where I have to say a resounding yes. I crave my idols. There are areas of my life where my hope, my security, and the illusion of control rest solely at the altar of my idols of comfort. And my head is in the sand regarding how some of my pursuits affect other people. There are definite ways where I'm fattening my heart. And to be honest, since I'm not preaching next week, I get to sit under this text really until I'm done because I'm not done wrestling with this passage. There's more work to be done in my own heart. But let me ask a few more questions just to bring this to the practical again. To those that are right in the middle of life, right in the middle of the rat race of life like me, mid-career, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you working? Why are you saving? Why are you buying? Why are you selling? What is your heart's motivation? Where is your hope? Is it in your 401k, your house, your car, your stuff, your emergency fund? Is it in getting more and bigger and shinier and better because you somehow believe it will satisfy something in you or fatten your hearts? Or are you taking every opportunity, every purchase, every vacation, every dinner out, as an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel in dark places? Are they gifts from God to advance his kingdom? Or are they gifts that you use, like I've described myself, that are rotten? So the people close to retirement are already retired in here. Are you done? Is this the stage of life you've been waiting for? Have you finally arrived and, and, and now you deserve a break? It's time to sit with your toes in the water, your in the sand? 
Or is this a stage of life where you have more time, more resources to invest in the kingdom of God? Are you, more na- are you now more free to fatten your hearts? Or are you more free to serve and give like you never have before? The church is starving for people with life experience to invest in those a little further behind them in life. Your life experience, there's younger people who are craving for that. Will you sacrifice some of your comfort, your luxury to invest in those lives? Students and young professionals, what is your end goal? Have you believed the world's lie that it's all about you, all about your comfort and illusion of control? And it's about getting as much as you can as quickly as you can. Got to remember, we have no idea what tomorrow holds. In fact, we really have no idea what today holds. Will your life be marked as one of self-indulgence and heart-fattening, getting and doing and experiencing, or will you war against the world's lies? You see, everything I just said runs in complete opposition to what the world teaches us. How can we compete with that barrage of messages screaming, get more, do more, it's all about you, you deserve luxury, you need better. And don't for a minute think that the advertising industry is not full of experts that are carefully crafting and planting these messages that some we don't even consciously notice those messages that disciple us in this way of life. A a final illustration. I'm hoping that guacamole will help prove my point. Um, A few weeks ago, I was uh, heading to Birmingham for a meeting. Uh, On the phone, my son calls me early in the morning. Hey, Dad, can you pick up some guacamole and bring it to me at school for a school project? I'm like, no, I can't. I'm heading to Birmingham. Um, That conversation out of my mind. Go to Birmingham, have the meeting, um, afterwards, go to lunch with some coworkers. We go to a Mexican restaurant in downtown Birmingham. While we're eating, I see the, the guy pushing around this cart. Couldn't figure out at first what it was, and I realized that's one of those table-side guacamole carts. Um, I notice it, and I forget about it. It goes out of my mind, so far as I thought. Um, wrap up lunch, hop in the car. I'm, uh, I'm heading back to Tuscaloosa. And I'm talking to Troy on the phone. Um, and, and I think we're talking about something along the lines of the servant leadership training that, uh, that we just launched. Um, we're talking, and in the background, I hear like a utensil claiming, or clinging against a dish. That's all I hear. Um, we wrap up the conversation. I'm like, hey, man, I got to go make another phone call. Enjoy the guacamole or whatever else you're making. Um, and we get off the phone. Troy misses the or whatever else you're making thing because he immediately freaks out. Because how do I, driving in the car, realize that he's standing in his kitchen making homemade guacamole? Um, if, yeah, if you know Troy, if you know Troy, his conspiracy theories immediately kicked in. Um, but the reality is, I was the victim in that. Um, How are we to compete with the constant messages of the world when a couple of experiences in my day that I thought I forgot about influenced something I said really just to kind of be funny to Troy? You know, coincidentally, he was making guacamole, but the reality is conversations and experiences from way earlier in the day influenced me and created me to say that. Um, 
we don't even realize how what we see and hear and don't even recognize we see and hear, how those are discipling us into a way of life. And we're hopeless if our spiritual diet only consists of coming here on Sunday morning and maybe being in a community group. We have to believe and practice the reality that the Word of God truly is the bread of life. We've got to go back to the practical steps we've talked about several times in the book of James. Saturate our minds with the Word of God. Feast on it daily. Saturate our minds with worship. Plug into a community group. Get in a discipleship relationship with somebody else who will remind you of the truths so that maybe the guacamole effect will be true in that regard, that when faced with a decision, when faced with a choice, that sometimes without even realizing it, the spiritual truths that we've been dwelling on or processing will influence our decisions, influence our pursuits. But unbeliever, without the hope of Christ, you're left to your stuff and your pursuits in this mist of a life. And all those things are evidence against you in a judgment that really is coming. You can bank on yourself and the lies, or you can trust in the life-giving hope of Jesus Christ. And believer, listen to the words of Paul in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want that. I want to be able to say that in all things, in all circumstances, that's true of me. But see, the only way to get there, and you can't fake it, is to fully get the indictment that stands against you. Face the realities of exhibits A, B, and C. Sometimes we do love money, stuff, comfort, control more than Jesus. And sometimes that's reflected in in what we're pursuing and in how we treat others as we're pursuing those things and how we live our lives. Band, come on back up. But here's the cool thing about legal cases seen the exhibits but in almost every legal case there's something called a suppression hearing it's where the evidence is brought into court and brought before the judge and arguments are made about why this evidence should either stick or why this evidence should be suppressed or thrown out not let into the trial and if you're an unbeliever in this room the evidence against you will stand And you will be judged. But believer, when the evidence mounts up against you, when you feel the weight of your sinful heart and desires, when the exhibits are clearly not in your favor, then look to the cross. That's where Jesus stepped in and said, yes, those things are true of Matt, but he's mine. That's covered by my blood. That evidence was suppressed at the cross. That leads to repentance. That leads to the ability to draw a line in the sand and say no more 
to the selfish pursuits. Because if you try it in any other way, it'll fail. But the repentance that comes from the cross. So accept his grace. And then with Paul, cry out and say, I count all of that. All my stuff. All my control. All my comfort as loss. Because I get Jesus. He's my comfort. He's in control. He gives me what I need. And he gives it to me for my good and his glory. And that's what the communion table is about this morning. This is not ritual. But this is a celebration and this is for believers in this room. A celebration of the great suppression hearing. That was Jesus taking yours and my wickedness. And saying dismissed. Suppressed. He or she is mine. So this morning come to the table in repentance. And come in celebration of Christ covering. Again, this is for believers. Unbelievers, if you want this hope, come forward. Troy will be over here. He'd love to talk to you. Or believer, if you're feeling the weight of all this and you just want to pray with somebody, neither one of us has this figured out, but we will give you Jesus. Come and talk. Let's stand and pray. And then come to the table. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the cross. Thank you that that's our only hope. That, that as we stand and we face the indictment of, of what is revealed in our heart, our only hope is trusting in the finished work of Christ. So I pray that if there's those this morning that have yet to do so and that are left trusting in their own efforts and their own sense of security or their possessions, that you would break them of that, that you would draw them to yourself. And to the believer, Lord, just let them hear those words dismissed and cause worship for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.